0: Two important notes before we begin. Firstly, if you're listening without headphones or earphones, please stop, find a pair and then continue. Earphones are always preferable but for this episode they're essential, because the performance discussed took place inside a large cavernous cathedral, and without headphones, excerpts from the live performance appear distorted. Secondly, this episode discusses religious content in a manner that may be considered objectionable to some. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Jesus was fam. Jesus had wrists so limp they had to nail them straight send him to conversion there. Jesus didn't make it. Jesus' mother wept, Jesus' mother wept, Jesus' mother wept. There were so many parts of my identity that felt so incongruent to how I had received this figure of Christ, you know, who was white, who was, you know, super skinny and wrapped and straight and, you know, all these things, you know, but then you read the gospels and like what you're confronted with is a very, Radical character, an anti capitalist character, a arguably what we would call queer character, just in terms of the way that they relate to people. I mean, you know, it's just like this person that is being persecuted for having a series of men following him everywhere. It's just like that's the gay shit I've ever read. You know what I mean? Jesus had a drag name. Jesus had many drag names Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah me, sissy. Jehovah shamelong, prince of penises, prince in pieces. Associating Jesus with whiteness, associating Jesus with like the upper class, the way that this person gets utilized sociopolitically, it's just like it's completely antithetical to everything that he was and everything that he ministered. And so I guess I just needed to re-script that. And, and the way that I could re-script that was by projecting or taking my biography and putting it into the life of Jesus. And finding that nothing changes. Even with the life that I've lived, that could have been Jesus' life. Like, Jesus easily could have been a black, genderqueer, non-binary thought, you know I mean? <laughs> That dreams of the, 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 the destruction of empire. Um, that could entirely be the life of Jesus. And in that way, it allowed me like a framework to re-inscribe the divinity that I have access to by virtue of the covenant that Jesus represents in in the New Testament. Jesus didn't know how to make boundaries. Jesus practiced ethical polyamory. He gave until there was nothing left of him, and on the day he disappeared, his body became a tomb, and Jesus went. God, Jesus went.
0: From the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town, This is the ICA Podcast, where we interview South African artists and curators who perform or curate live interdisciplinary works. I'm Catherine Bull and you're listening to Season 2, Episode 3, featuring Copano Marocha. Today we explore Marocha's 2019 performance, Jesus Thesis and Other Critical Fabulations. The performance which was developed during Marocha's master's degree at the University of Cape Town takes its name from a poem that Marocha was writing at the time, and also from academic Saria Hartman's concept of critical fabulation. The work was performed twice over the course of Marocha's master's degree, first on the University of Cape Town's hidden campus, and then on a much grander scale at the Infecting the City Public Art Festival in 2019, where it was performed at the St George's Anglican Cathedral in central Cape Town.
1: Like when you go to St. George's Cathedral at the entrance, there's this really beautiful invitation um, that says that we're a space for the poor, we're a space for sex workers, we are a space for queer people, we are a space for etc., etc., etc. And that church also has a very political history of having supported a lot of asylum seekers during apartheid. And so all the inscriptions of that space, alongside the contestation of what a church represents in our contemporary society in relation to poor people, queer people, black people made it like energetically, but also scenographically, um, right. So all of these things kind of came together to then arrive at this decision of, okay, this is the place that the performance will happen in.
0: In today's episode, we step into the St. George's Cathedral, with its high ceilings, long centre aisle, stained glass windows, and resonant reverberations, to re-experience the performance of Jesus' thesis, and the diversity of writing and thinking that inspired it. We dive into three of Marocha's major points of interest in the work, comparative mythology, the fabulation or re-scripting of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, and then ending, as the performance itself does, by reimagining the figure of Jesus' betrayer, Judas. But we begin, as always, by going much further back.
1: performance artist a writer a culture worker and i've been living in belgium for the past two years but still very much rooted in south africa but kind of re-rooting in this new western european locale so i grew up in um so i was born in in benoni which is a, a little dorpi in gauteng in south africa and yeah we grew up or i grew up predominantly on the East Rand of Gauteng. We moved around a lot. So I was born in a hospital in Benoni, lived in Sekunda for a really long time. Um, the town that I remember growing up in is, is called Springs. My father is Susutu, my mother is Kasa. Um, my name is Susutu because that's kind of like the tradition of like passing down um, cultural lineage. So like I am technically Susutu, but I identify a lot more with my Kasa lineage. When I was growing up, you know, in the, in the new South Africa as a born free, as they say, the representations of God that I was receiving were coming from like many different angles. So like there was the God that my mother would speak about. And my mother spoke a lot about angels. Um, like we would like every night, the reason that we would pray is so that the angels would watch over us. Um, so this kind of like direct address of God was not necessarily something that we kind of interfaced with, like you know, we didn't necess- it was almost there was always kind of an intermediary somehow. But then in in Bible study, we spoke a lot about Jesus um, and the figure of Jesus. And so know, Jesus is our friend, and like Jesus is a homie that we can chat to all the time. Um, but once again, this kind of like intermediary and God was always this kind of like omnipotent to be feared fearsome and then in like church church like i remember like very political sermons you know about like what we need to do as christians in this country when we look at the situation of poverty when we look at the situation of race when we look at the situation of gender-based violence um, what is our responsibility? So a lot of kind of like my political education or just like my political awareness actually came through the church. Yeah, and then like in high school, because, you know, I went to uh, I went to Michael House. Yeah, maybe we saved that, but yeah. I went to Michael House, a diocesan school, the second most expensive high school in South Africa, set up by a missionary by the name of James Cameron Todd in the late 1800s, who dispossessed the indigenous people of their land and built a temple to the Archangel Michael. And there, yeah, that was also like a different, that was a different invocation of God and Jesus, but we can talk about that maybe a bit later. And yet, there exists another theory for how Jesus spent those years. Yeah, so the title is Jesus' Thesis and Other Critical Fabulations. Jesus' Thesis, that was the name of a poem that I wrote somewhere in the range of when I started my master's in live art, interdisciplinary, and public art through the ICA. When I actually entered the degree to study, or with what my question was, was like trying to look at and unpack and understand the process of identity making um, through creative practices. I I stumbled upon the work of Sadia Hartman, who's a black American literary scholar, um, who coined the term critical fabulation, which is a process of kind of taking historical archives, finding gaps, and then fabulating and narrating into those gaps in such a way that you don't deviate from the historic arc. Um, or narrative arc or linearity of the story Um, but through these kinds of fabulations through these insertions of fiction shift the way in which we read that history and what i ended up creating then was this kind of um performance that takes my life and inserts it into the gaps, the historical gaps in the life of um, of Jesus of Nazareth, while also kind of looking at Greco-Roman mythologies, Babylonian, Mesopotamian mythologies that predate Christianity um, as precursors to Christianity, and the archetypes that we see in Christianity. Sister Tanishigano. Uh, uh, yeah. So it's nighttime and we're outside the St. George's Cathedral in Cape Town. Um, the audience is gathering in the parking lot and all of a sudden there is the sound of a chiming bell um, and a figure emerges from the doors of the church under an archway and they are dressed in a white robe reminiscent of a kind of grecian toga and they're ringing this bell ringing this bell ringing this bell and slowly after some time after the crowd has gathered this figure then guides everyone through the doorway and we see this altar that has been prepared Um, flowers strewn around the altar in a semicircle. There is a portrait of a kind of reinterpreted black, queer Mother Mary figure. The figure at the altar slowly lights these candles as if in reverence to this kind of queered Mother Mary. And then they begin reciting the words... Ave Maria, Ave Brenda Fassi, Ave Beyonce, Ave Lady Gaga, Ave Miriam Makeba, Ave, 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 Ave. And I suppose that the way that I think about that is like. These figures of a certain kind of divine femininity are acting as intermediaries to the goddess because the purpose of that moment is actually to invoke the goddess, to preside over the ceremony. My um, assistant guides the audience through the center aisles into their pews. And yes, I'm kind of very sexily and sultry walking down the aisle towards a projection of um, an image of the birth of Venus by Botticelli, There's a raised kind of pulpit. um, And then on that pulpit, there's a a plinth or rather like a a cascading staircase that ends in a very like large plinth. And the score changes from the Ave Maria into the flower duet from the opera Lachme. what i'm trying to do or what i was interested in doing was using these kinds of like references of western classicality and imposing my black queer body upon them um, but imposing it in such a way that it transfigures the beauty of these works i slowly like roll over my shoulders to reveal um a sunflower in my ass (laughs) and I take the robe and I put it over my head and I slowly crawl up the staircase to the plinth. And with the use of the toga, I lift it above my head when I'm on the top of the plinth and really central to the image so that the image of Venus is superimposed on my body and then her face becomes uh, projected onto the white cloth. So it looks like I become the goddess. And then slowly we move from the flower duet into um, Ariana Grande's uh, "God Is a Woman," and so I'm on this plane. Then I slowly like rotate and um, bend over, or rather, start undulating my hips to the soundtrack of um, "God Is a Woman." And there's a way in which I'm kind of like, you know, I mean, we talk about Venus, and in a South African context, we cannot not think about Sarki Batman and how she was, you know, given this epithet of the, the hot and tot of Venus. Um, and I have a very voluptuous behind. So you know, something that was very present in my mind was the way in which um, black people, black people like me, queer femme black people, are objectified. Because often in history, that kind of presentation of my body is for the purposes and the extraction of joy, the jouissance of um White people of whiteness to enjoy the the in in the white imaginary the deformity of my body the grotesqueness of my body and what does it produce energetically if I play into that but play into it from a perspective or from a from the jumping point of like as a person I really enjoy being naked it's a very enjoyable experience and I enjoy being observed while I'm naked. There's a reclamation there, but not just a reclamation, there's also a kind of alchemic, transformative, transfiguration thing that's happening there that's also very powerful. And that's a lot of the work that that I was trying to do through Jesus' Thesis, was thinking really like, alchemically, how can I transform these relationships that I have to these certain things, to my body, to um, whiteness, to blackness, to femininity, um, and hopefully through that transformative process, by building that ritual, it also has ripple effects outside of just myself. The figure that I started with when I was doing my research, like my practice as a search trajectory, was the figure of Venus, the goddess, the Roman goddess Venus. Um, And so I took that image and tried to like then take apart like its genealogy, you know. And so from Venus, I come to Aphrodite. From Aphrodite, I go to Isis. From Isis, I go to Ishtar and Inanna. So I was actually looking at this kind of, this concept of the divine feminine. And I think it was in taking apart these various narratives of these these goddesses um, that these these themes started to come up. Like one of the themes was parthenogenesis, the big virgin, and the to be born. Thus, which is the ability to give birth to oneself, which all of these goddesses kind of, in one way or another, gave birth to themselves. The that to me was like so fucking queer. Um, and I was really interested in that, right? Because as queer folks like often were kind of having to birth ourselves um, from, you know, being socialized into heteronormativity and then having to create another selves for ourselves or having to remember another selves for ourselves. Another thing that came across was like the disappearance of the divine feminine. So in like the, you know, in the story of Isis and Horus, Horus becomes the holy child and Isis is like, the story that is told is kind of in function of bringing Horace into the world. Um, and it's the same with, like, Aphrodite and Venus. And trying to trace that then to the mythology that I actually come from, which is Christianity, and the way in which the Immaculate Conception and Mary is this, uh, this feminine character that is in service of the archetype of Jesus, of bringing Jesus into the world. And then after she's done that, like is completely forgotten Was completely relegated from any kind of importance unless in relation to, to Jesus. Um, so it's really interesting this idea of like a masculine figure that eclipses this divine feminine. For, for the, the folks listening at home, um, this comes at a moment in the performance where I'm talking about a motif in comparative mythology. Um, so it's a motif that like Jesus falls into this idea of a of a deity that is that is killed or dies and then rises again, quite simply. So at this point in the performance, I've come down from the pulpit, from the the plinth all the way down to the ground floor of the stage. Yes. Yes. I'm encircled by this ring of flowers. I'm completely naked except for a gold choker around my neck. And I introduce the, the the most renowned of the dying and rising deities, Jesus of Nazareth. I take the sunflower out of my ass and begin de-petaling the sunflower, naming all the different names that Jesus has, not just in the Bible but in different cultures. Yeshua, Yesu, Desire of Nations. Okay. And I, so I was just writing a lot of poetry over that time while I was doing my studies. And there was just a lot of kind of like um, Christian theology that was coming through the writing that I was doing. And um, so Jesus' thesis was, one of the, was the name of one of the poems. And I'll, I'll read the prologue as well to give it um, some of its performative. Um, yeah. Though much is known about the early childhood of Jesus of Nazareth and his ministry from his late twenties, there are no historical documents that help us divine with certainty just where and what our dear Lord and Savior was up to between the ages of twelve and twenty-nine. The lost years of Jesus. Most scholars posit that he was most probably apprenticing with his father as a in the late medieval in the 19th and 20th centuries theories began to emerge that Jesus had visited Kashmir instead or had studied with the Essenes in the Judea desert and yet there exists another theory for how Jesus spent those years There's a Jesus was a mess. Jesus liked to rough. Hmm? Jesus liked ropes and chains, sometimes nails. <laughs> Jesus had a safe word. No one remembers it. No one dares try. The audience, I can I I can feel and hear this like, because we're you know you have a bodily choreography that you automatically enter into when you're in a space that's coded in a particular way, and you know how you're supposed to act in a church. So like it starts with kind of like these muffled chuckles of like, surely I can't, I'm not allowed to laugh at this. Surely this isn't you know. And then as I continue, and it just it it just escalates, you know, because that's not like we haven't even scraped the surface with doesn't like it rough, you know. We get to daddy, we get to otter, we get to cum slut, you know, like we go all the way. <laughs> and because I'm in charge, you know, because I've taken this role of like you know the priest, like I'm giving permission, you know. Jesus served for <laughs> the. <than God>. Yeah. <laughs> But there's also this friction because it's like the space that I've, the energy that I've generated is very reverential. There are all of these like um, very specific choreographies of religiosity that I've abided by. You know, I've cleared the energy of the space with incense that is specifically coded for that environment. We've done a reverential worshiping practice and we've, we've, we've incantated the names of divinity. I've raised sonically energy into a kind of reverential space. And the kind of meter that I achieve in my vocal delivery, in my performance, very much mirrors that of a priest. So there's this way in which all of these requirements have been met. And then I propose something in the, in the logic of that sermon that is completely antithetical to how you would usually be in that space. And I could, if, on an embodied level, there's this dissonance. I think that's really the word, like there's a dissonance in the audience. was a power And also in the cadence in my voice, it becomes very playful. We're just playing around. This is a gag. And that also indicates that, like, you're allowed to laugh. like, And you see that in the audience, like, as it goes, as it builds, as they allow the logic of what I'm proposing to be, you know, to accept it. Um, they allow themselves to kind of, like, join the gaggery. <laughs> and, and the laughs become more free, and this tension dissipates, and everyone's like, okay... If I laugh, God is not going to come through the ceiling and drag me <laughs> into the quarters of hell. Jesus, practiced ethical of- <laughs> <laughs> He gave until there was nothing left of him. And on the day he disappeared, his body became a tomb and Jesus went. God, Jesus went. Yeah, just thinking of the ministry of Jesus, because like, there's really like historically this gap between 12 and 29, um, where we just historically cannot verify what your boy was up to. And of course, whatever was happening in there was formative for the ministry that he begins in his late 20s. It's like I'm trying to think about like what initiated that, you know? And how does that make us read that differently? Because we don't have that context in the gospel. We don't know why he's this kind of person. You know, it's just really just like, because he's the son of God. But like life was still happening to Jesus, you know, and so like that, like that humanity, that like that materiality, that like in the worldness, like what happened to you to make you the person that you are. At age thirteen, Jesus committed suicide. She
0: was sixteen.
1: Jesus wept for forty days and forty nights. Um and. I feel like the things that have turned me into the person that I am are those moments that I speak about in in Jesus Thesis. These very beautiful, painful, traumatic, formative moments. Um, these are all moments that really cracked something open into me. <laughs> At age 15, Jesus came out of the gate to a congregation of friends and mentors and Bible study camp. The combination wept, and Jesus' body became fish and bread, and everyone ate and everyone was fed. At age 16, But just like going back to like thinking about you know when my, you know when my mother told me about the suicide of my cousin who I was very close to and hadn't seen for a really really long time, and all of a sudden she wasn't there anymore, and I just remember like weeping in the kitchen, and it like I don't know it just it it like, I feel like in my life things that maybe should have made me harder or would have made you know has has made some people like hard. Um, it's like they crack me open and they soften me. At age 19, he had his first major depressive episode.
0: Two months spent in the desert to his own making.
1: At age twenty he started cutting again. Started seeing a therapist. Yeah, it's, it's opened up something in me and I believe that it's divinity, you know. And I imagine these kind of like moments, like inserting those moments into the biography of Jesus as like, these were the moments that God came into him. He got consumed by love like in the belly of the whale. He There's this narrative, or there's this way that Jesus is perceived as having arrived into the world with this divinity. Um, but I wonder, like, yeah, cool, maybe we accept that he arrived with it, but what activated it? You know, what gave it context? You know, because it wasn't his environment. His environment was telling him that sex workers are to be stoned, that lepers are untouchable, that etc., 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 and yet he lives differently. What happened? I was made a punchline. And I look at my life and like I, I know who I was taught to be. you know I, I went to a school that was set up by a missionary. you know I was supposed to be the, the the native elite that is you know ruling the country on behalf of the colonials, and maybe I'm doing that in a way that I'm not aware of, um, but I do believe that my life has been about undermining that, and that came from somewhere into And kind of also trying to hearken back to the, the historicity of who Jesus was you know reminding people that like this is someone who's so on the fringe of society hanging out with sex workers and lepers and people that are really on the fringes and advocating for them as these are the people that will inherit the kingdom of God. You know, just like so fucking radical for its time. So the way, like, reading my biography into that in the first instance, it's trying to like inspire me to be in the in, in the etymology of the word Christian to be Christ-like in the sense of being radical, but also indicating to people that people that are like me that are often on the fringes of society, black, trans non-binary, queer, etc we have a lot more in common with Jesus than heteronormative society. And that's like, you know, I, I don't know, like there's something about the figure of Jesus that is so much more queer than we allow it to be. The, the, the divine, the divine I was writing a lot about, before I did this master's, about forgiveness because I came out of a very difficult situation in 2016, very traumatic situation. Um, and I had this like deep desire to be forgiven and feeling just like the world's most like unforgivable person. Um, and so just like trying to think of like an archetype in, in the Bible who like somehow mirrors that or is reminiscent of that, like so ununderstandable, so opaque. Cause it doesn't make sense. Like you read the story of Judas and it's just, like, why my bru <laughs> Why my G? For silver I will <laughs> Betrayal is not always a decision. A kiss is sometimes a prelude to Calvary. Jesus. Just ask Jesus.
0: Jesus, oh. it's not a... Jesus. Jesus. No
1: Just, like, trying to think of, like, the most unforgivable person having felt like that. Um, like, no one imagines themselves as Judas. You know, everyone would have been a disciple. Everyone would, you know, everyone would have been Mary Magdalene. Everyone would have been, you know. And I think what Judas represents, or there's something about what Judas represents, is kind of, like, id, this base self that is in all, in all inside all of us wracked with a guilt that simmered his body to ash. No ceremony. No ceremony. Just a slow and silent dissolution. and only penance for bad, heavy earnings. Having experienced harm and having done harm and lived to tell the tale, it's like, what can wisdom traditions tell us about that what can they tell us about ourselves and our propensity to do harm and what we need to do the work we need to do in order to co-regulate with that not to suppress it not to castigate it not to pretend that it's not there which we do so well in our polite violent culture of south africa but to co-regulate with it this is
0: beautiful
1: so I knew that like in the, in the wisdom of my dramaturgical partner, Nomi Bloom, who was doing the, the, the masters with me at the time, she always talks about how in a performance there needs to be that one thing that completely shifts the energy. Um, and I really took that advice to heart. So we end with um, a ballad by Barbara Streisand from the musical Funny Girl. And so I'm wearing a kind of oversized dinner jacket and there's like a hard spotlight on me and it's in a very kind of like cabaret aesthetic and the lyrics go, like the first verse is Oh my man, I love him so He'll never know All oh, my life is just a spare I don't care For whatever my man is, I am his forevermore. (laughs) This musical, it was such a great allegory for like everything that I was talking about. And the song My Man is like... It's such a great ballad to sing to Judas, to Jesus, to God, to divinity. And in the, in, the, in the tradition of the church, we always end with a song, you know, to like lift that energy up, right? Um, and those lyrics like, oh my man, I love him so, he'll never know, <laughs> you know, that can go multi-directionally. That could be Jesus to us, you know, like we will just never understand how much Jesus loves us. Um, And there is this way in which, like, the covenant that we create with Jesus, or is created with Jesus, it's it's like, it's forevermore. This is just, this is the covenant for eternity. But then also just, like, in in my logic, you know, because I kind of intimate, you know, I, I imply that Judas is the lover of Jesus, and, like, imagining Judas singing to Jesus, you know, and imagining that Judas knew that, like, this is what he needed to do in order for Jesus to become Jesus, in order for Jesus to complete his covenant, someone had to betray him, right? Jesus had already predicted it. Imagine that's your role, having to be that person, and imagine, like, this is the ballad that you sing to him, like, my man, like, I love him so, and he will never know. So a ballad from Jesus to Judas, from Judas to Jesus, from us to Jesus, from Jesus to us.
0: The ICA podcast is a production of the Institute for Creative Arts at the University of Cape Town. It is produced and edited by me, Catherine Bull. Music in this episode features Smooth Stone by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be releasing episodes 4 to 8 of season 2, featuring Gavin Craston, Nontobisimo Yikwa, Nomi Blumen, Atipachuruga, and Jay Pappa in the new year. So, keep an eye on our website, which is www.ica.uct.ac.za, for details. And until then, thanks, as always, for listening.